Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 133. I'm your host, Paul Rakoff. Fall is here, and I really love fall, but I don't think a summer has ever gone by that fast. But the summer of 2021 is no more, and colder winds are coming, and it's definitely a time to stay vigilant. The most significant and persistent terrorism-related threat facing our country today, which stems from both homegrown and domestic violent extremists who are inspired by a broad range of ideological motivations. Domestic violent extremists, radicalized by personalized grievances, ranging from racial and ethnic bias to anti-government, anti-authority sentiment to conspiracy theories. Since the spring of 2020, so the past 16, 18 months or so, we've more than doubled our domestic terrorism caseload. That was Department of Homeland Security Director Alejandro Mayorkas and FBI Director Chris Wray testifying this week on Capitol Hill about top national security threats facing America 20 years after 9-11. We've more than doubled our domestic terrorism caseload. That's what the FBI Director Chris Wray said. More than doubled in 18 months. The domestic terrorism threat is the most pressing threat we have. Almost 10 months after the January 6th terrorist attacks on our capital, the threat is growing massively. Thankfully, there were no significant attacks that took place in D.C. or anywhere else on September 18th at the so-called Justice for J6 rally. Rioters were far outnumbered by cops, journalists, and counter-protesters. In the end, just a few hundred so-called protesters showed up. The Proud Boys and other right-wing radical groups encouraged their followers, in the end, not to attend. And there were just four arrests and no violence. But that was undoubtedly, at least partially, due to the extensive planning that was done to prevent it. Our Capitol Police, National Guard, FBI, NSA, and all the other government agencies were on high alert. They were mobilized. They were prepared. And they had a plan. And it worked, at least this time. The Capitol Hill police and broader national security system learned from the mistakes of January 6th. They made adjustments. They made a revised plan. They had a plan. Failing to plan is planning to fail. They learned that lesson on January 6th, painfully. And this time, they adjusted. And they had a plan which continues to be in direct contrast to what we saw unfold this summer in Afghanistan, what I've called the great American betrayal of Afghanistan and that debacle that followed, and the issues that continue today. With Afghan refugees not having places to go, the president refusing to use capacity at places like Guam, U.S. military bases hastily set up as refugee camps, needing public donations for diapers, and countless Afghans, and some Americans, left to die. There was clearly no plan to get America out of Afghanistan responsibly, and no plan to save our Afghan allies, and to even save Americans. And there's still 
not a comprehensive plan for how the U.S. government will resettle the people that did get out. I know, because the White House's Office of the Afghan Resettlement called me this week. They called me for my feedback, or maybe just to try to shut me up, and to ask for my support. I told them they can have it. Just tell me the plan. What's the plan? Here's the kicker. The person I spoke to admitted they don't have it done yet. They don't have the plan done yet. And the person that I talked to is only in that job for 90 days. So even now, this president still doesn't have a plan that he can share with me, with you, or with the world. Only about two weeks ago, did President Joe Biden's administration ask Congress to authorize $6.4 billion for Afghan resettlement efforts? They asked one week after the U.S. ended its military effort in Afghanistan. They asked for the money to do the job after they had already pulled out. That's a request they should have put in in April when they announced we were leaving from Afghanistan. But instead, they're still scrambling. They still don't have a plan. Leaders always owe the people they lead two things, guidance and support. Leaders are responsible for creating and communicating a plan and then committing the resources to the people that work for them to execute that plan. Right now, we have neither. We don't have a plan and we don't have the resources. There's no federal website you can go to to see the Afghan resettlement plan. And there's no money from Congress yet to support it. And meanwhile, back in Afghanistan, for all those we left behind, perhaps hundreds of thousands. When it comes to them, Biden and the White House continue to dither while our heroic allies continue to die in Afghanistan. Afghan soldiers, journalists, interpreters, teachers, artists, police officers, and especially women continue to die. Women of all backgrounds continue to die. The Taliban continues to solidify power and the Afghans continue to die. Americans and other allies of Afghanistan continue to scramble to get people out. Helpers like our recent guests on this show, Matt Zeller, Kristen Rouse, Jane Horton, Congressman Pete Meyer, and even the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, and countless others worldwide continue to rush to get Afghans out of harm's way. The Taliban continue to hunt and kill LGBTQ people past enemies, artists, and anyone that stood and might stand in their way. The Taliban continue to hunt. The Taliban continue to massacre. The Taliban continue the war. And meanwhile, Biden continues to deny mistakes were made, continues to fail to fix the special immigrant visa program, and continues to try to turn the page. He continues to try to spin Afghanistan into a good news story. He continues to deny the reality in Afghanistan and more broadly. And this is how he ended his speech at the United Nations just this week. I stand here today for the first time in 20 years with the United States not at war. We've turned the page. All the unmatched strength, energy, and commitment, will, and resources of our nation are now fully and squarely focused on what's ahead of us, 
not what was behind. I stand here today for the first time in 20 years with the U.S. not at war. That's what he said. And that is such a bullshit line. America is still at war with troops in places like Syria, Iraq, and even the Democratic Republic of Congo. U.S. troops routinely take rocket fire and UAV attacks in Iraq. There's still hundreds of troops in Syria. And that's a war zone. 900 U.S. troops. They're under threat from the Russians, from Assad's forces, from ISIS, from ISIS-K, and from others. But Biden says they're no longer at war. And the authority to allow all of it, the AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force, comes from the same authorization from Congress that was used in Afghanistan. America is still at war. And to say otherwise is a lie. It's gaslighting. And it's a lie. And it's such a bad lie. Bad for America, bad for our politics, and especially bad for the men and women in uniform in multiple countries getting combat pay right now. Tell the mothers and fathers of U.S. troops in places like Syria and Iraq that they're not at war. And tell them they're not at war if they come home in flag-draped coffins. Biden's got to stop this shit. It's really hurting his credibility in America and especially around the world. America remains at war, or at least our military does. And he's lying, even to himself. And he continues to talk out both sides of his mouth. Remember, on August 31st, he said this. And for anyone who gets the wrong idea, let me say clearly, to those who wish America harm, to those who engage in terrorism against us or our allies, know this, the United States will never rest. We will not forgive, we will not forget. We'll hunt you down to the ends of the earth and we will, you will pay the ultimate price. We'll hunt you down to the ends of the earth and you will pay the ultimate price. So which is it, Mr. President? Are we at war or not? It sure looks and sounds like war to me. It looks like war to the civilians living in places where American drones continue to fly overhead. And it looks like war to the families of troops still deployed. And it sure looks like war to the people of Afghanistan, especially the women. There are 14 million women and girls in Afghanistan. 14 million. Roughly half the overall population. And right now, the Taliban are waging war against all of them. It's open season on women in Afghanistan. They're being forced into marriages, forced into exile, forced into servitude, and forced into graves. They're being killed daily. And America. And in particular, this president and many leading Democrats are doing nothing about it. This should not be a partisan issue. It's about doing the right thing. And now it's about a fight of our time, something that should transcend party. And for America to fail to act now to protect the women of Afghanistan will be a true crime and a stain on our nation forever. We could have done more in the Sudan. We could have done more in the former Yugoslavia. 
We could have done more in Syria, and we can do more now. Millions in this country are outraged by the rollback of abortion rights happening in Texas and other states across America. Understandably, women's rights are definitely under attack here in America. But in Afghanistan, their lives are under attack. Their dignity is under attack. Their daughters are under attack. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And attention must be paid. And action must be taken, not just in Texas, but in Afghanistan. The fall of 2021 is a pivotal time in world history. Will the Taliban be allowed to create a nation that murders and oppresses women? Will they create their ultimate dream of a nation state where women can't drive, women can't go to school, women can't sing, women can't work, women can't live? Or will someone stop them? Will we stand up and save the brave women fighting the most noble fight of their lives? Or will we leave them to die? That's the choice facing America and the world this fall. It's a reality we need to face. We can't turn the page. We can't turn our back. We can't leave them to die. And we must hear their cries especially if our president won't. And our guest in this episode will share the truth. She will share their voices. She will share their cries. She's a true warrior for peace. One of my personal heroes and a returning guest who's been at the forefront of some of the most important fights for women for a generation. She'll take us deep into the terror and scope of the loss with the Taliban now in control. She's an activist, humanitarian, best-selling author, TV host, inspirational speaker, founder of Women for Women International, and a force of nature, Zainab Salbi. At just 23 years old, Zainab founded Women for Women International, a grassroots humanitarian and development organization dedicated to serving women survivors of war. Under Zainab's leadership, the organization grew from helping 30 women at its inception to more than 478,000 marginalized women in eight conflict areas. It's distributed more than $120 million in direct aid and microcredit loans, and it's impacted more than 1.7 million family members. Way back in episode nine of this show, Zainab told us the full story of how she was raised in Baghdad, Iraq, how she grew up a small girl calling Saddam Hussein her uncle because her father was Saddam Hussein's private pilot. And from an early age, Zainab was thrust into a small and twisted circle around the notorious dictator. She took us inside that bizarre world and shared how she survived it and how she escaped war, brutality, and abuse. She escaped an abusive arranged marriage and landed in America. She came here to America looking for hope, looking for freedom, looking for a new future, like so many of the Afghans that are arriving in America right now. Zainab only had $400 in her pocket. She landed in Chicago, and she went from working in a Hallmark store 
to founding a global nonprofit to receiving honors from the President of the United States at the White House. She's a true American immigration success story and a true hero. She's also the author of several best-selling books, including the national bestseller, Between Two Worlds, Escape from Tyranny. And her latest book is Freedom is an Inside Job. People Magazine called her one of 25 women changing the world. Foreign Policy Magazine named her as one of the 100 leading global thinkers. Fast Company identified her as one of the 100 most creative people in business. Arabian Business called Zainab the number one most influential Arab woman in the world. She's received the Eleanor Roosevelt Award for humanitarian work and for her journalism. She's been interviewed by Oprah Winfrey 10 times, and she even flipped it and became the first leader to land the first interview of Oprah Winfrey in the Arab world. Zainab Salbi is the voice of the voiceless. She's a survivor of war, a humanitarian trailblazer, and an inspiration to millions worldwide. And she's a conscience for America, especially now. And I'm honored to call her my friend. She's a true independent American. She's been a dedicated Democrat for many years, but she'll share her disgust with what's happened and how she really feels now about President Biden, a man she's met, a man she testified before when he was a senator, and a man she met when he was VP. And she does not hold back. It's the truth we all need to hear. Independent Americans is continuing our unique independent focus on the Afghanistan debacle and all the related parts. Afghanistan's never just been about Afghanistan. It's about a fight of our time. It's about a fight for the legacy of 9-11 and the so-called war on terror. And it's also about the fight for the soul of America. And also, more and more, about the legacy of the Biden presidency and the 2022 midterm elections. In this episode, we're bringing you the Righteous Media Five Eyes, independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And we're bringing you another dynamic, urgent conversation that breaks it down and keeps it real, with tough lessons and real truths. The kind to help you stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And it's especially needed when our government fails to pay it. It's a price we all have to pay now. Welcome to the truth about what's happening to women inside Afghanistan. Welcome to a reality check and a conscience call. Welcome to the ground truth of what is happening. Welcome to a look inside the war on women. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 133. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, and especially inside of Afghanistan, we are going to continue a really important, really dynamic focus on what's happening in Afghanistan and why it's so much bigger than Afghanistan. We are bringing back one of our most popular guests, one of my dearest friends, one of my personal heroes, and a person who is really perfect for this moment in history to help us understand the all of it. The great and powerful Zainab Salvi is back on Independent Americans. Welcome back, my friend. 
Thank you, Paul. I wish I feel great and powerful, but thank you very much for the endorsement. Humbled uh, to be here in this presence and love, love all of your shows and follow it closely. What a pleasure to be back here. Thank you. Well, it's my honor to have you back. The last time you joined us was May 2019, and it was episode nine. We were very early. It's almost 120 episodes later. We were in person in the Classic Car Club. Now the whole world has changed. We have a new president. We're living in new places. We're doing media differently. But you are a very um, thoughtful and I think powerful, internally powerful person. And so I've been asking everyone since the pandemic started, and I'd love to, to ask you, where are you and how are you? Well, um, just before the pandemic, I um, had a pre-experience with not COVID, with a severe case of Lyme disease that took me to the hospital and operating room and ICU and, and really um, um, put put an encounter, like a force an encounter with death, as I thought that I was grabbing, grasping from my last breath at one moment. And frankly, you know, the first word that came out of me breathing and my new breath was not whether I accomplished enough in life or not, not whether I got acknowledgement or not, frankly, particularly not whether I was, you know, featured in the media or not. It was kindness kindness. And as a result, I fundamentally changed my life. I moved to the countryside. I now live in a log cabin, uh, actually was owned by Edward R. Merrow, um, was built by Edward R. Merrow, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, a man who stood for truth in America. So it's a, a great honor that I uh, live in his cabin. I live in the, you know, I, I, I clean after horses and I garden my garden and I take care of my cat and I shifted, you know, and that shift is for several reasons. One is um, living in the city was sort of, uh, for me, um, I, I love the city, of course, um, but it was also disconnecting me from nature and nature when I was very vulnerable health wise and um, emotional wise, nature was my cheerleader. I felt it helped me breathe. It helped me walk again. It helped you like, yeah, you can do it. You know, every, every tree was my friend. And so I feel indebted to nature, honestly. And I decided to live there and closer to it and to, um, sort of, hum, you know, simplify my life um, so I can hear the wisdom of nature and I can hear my heart much more. And, you know, to be very, very honest, I mean, at one point I was watching the news when I was very sick and I was like, oh my God, that's divisive, you know? And it's like, whoa, I, like, I didn't even know to be being part of it that, that this, the division even, you know, even the good guys were creating unconsciously, you know, um, and rather than how do we look into our unity with ourselves, with each other and, and with nature. Anyway, so that was my life. That is my life, rather, until um, a month and a half ago, I lost sense of time when I got a call um, from a friend and a fellow board member in the International Refugee uh, Assistance Program and said, Zainab, uh, our, their Afghan women uh, and, uh, are threatened. The Afghan women leaders are threatened. Um, they have been, um, they discovered um, a list of assassinations, um, uh, already assassinated women and plus 
a list of women to be assassinated and there is no plan to evacuate them. And Paul, I tell you, after living two years of rebuilding my life and my ability to breathe and to walk and to think and, you know, in my garden, you know, all like it felt, as a friend said, it's the return of the Jedi. I like, mm. you know, went to the closet <laughs> symbolically and got my Jedi sword. And I was like, what? My Afghan sisters are in danger? And two things to mention here. One is there are moments in history where all bets are off and we all need to show up, right? For me, that was one of these moments. Um, I, I can't show up in every moment. There are moments, and we rotate in the moments, right? Some people take this moment. Some people. This was for me a moment that is close to my heart, and I had, you know, worked in war zones for twenty years as the founder of Women for Women International, and then I covered wars as a journalist, and then, you know, I'm in climate change right now. You know, I founded Daughters for Earth, and and I was like. What? Afghan, what, there are no evacuation plans for women leaders? Excuse me? They, I mean, I know we talked a lot about no evacuation plans for interpreters and allies and the people who help the U.S. military. But these, but there were no evacuation plans for women leaders who are visually in, in, um, recognizable. And I pick up the phone and call my colleagues at Women for Women. And I then I'm told a story that in the last year, since the Taliban were invited to be in negotiation with the U.S. and the Afghan government, they have been silently assassinating not only predominantly women leaders, but all the intellectuals and all the artists in the different provinces, right? So it's like, Boom, 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 boom. That according to the local colleagues that I spoke with, that by the time this, the last few months that they start taking, and when the re- part of the reason where people are saying, giving up their arms and, and not fighting is because a campaign of fear and terror has been happening systematically by the Taliban as the U.S. was in and okay, okay, the Afghan government as well, but it was mandated by the U.S. government, was in negotiation with them. Not only were they assassinating these women, I mean, I say women leaders, but also, as, again, intellectuals, you know, journalists, artists, they were also distributing flyers. This is um, this is the knowledge I'm like getting early August, honestly, or maybe late July. I really lost sense of time, right? Mm-hmm. Flyers that they will send me they're saying, here are the new rules of operation. Women can no longer live without a guardian. Men have to grow beards. No more music allowed. No more uh, whatever. Uh, meats. Uh, they mention meat because pork in Islam is, is not allowed. And, you know, I, I you know, I, I know maybe they associate pork with the with the U.S. presence, but no more pork sold in any store or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was like. So we've known, here's the thing, Paul, you know, you, there must be, I I can't imagine there was no knowledge. I didn't know because I was in my garden working on climate change, right? But there was knowledge 
there must have been knowledge that there was systematic assassination and a campaign of terror that was happening in the last year. And that when they took Afghanistan, one province at a time, really, 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 really quick and got to Kabul, it should not have been a surprise. And I don't understand, and I'm very irritated, to be very honest, by anyone who's saying, well, they're saying we're not going to, we're going to allow women to study or girls to study. You know, it's like there was no reason whatsoever. There is no reason to believe them. And another thing I want to say, I worked in wars, as you said, as you know. I have lost so many women friends in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen. When I say friends, they are women leaders in the women's rights movement or in the democratic movements. You know, one of an amazing woman in Libya gets assassinated for simply telling people on Facebook, telling the youth, go and vote, right? She gets assassinated inside her home as she was wearing her nightgown in her forehead, right? We are talking about women always get assassinated the first, you know? It's because it's low-hanging fruits. People still don't take the women, women's assassination or death or rape or violence very seriously. And what I'm saying is that for God's sake, they only start violence uh, groups, militias, radicals, fundamentalists, you know, terror. They always start with women, always. And rather than seeing it eh, on the side, we've got to see it as an indicator for a, a new trajectory to come. Thank you for setting the table. <laughs> I am and, very and really, passionate I, on this. I know this is, this is exactly why I wanted you on the show, because I was going to ask you to set the stage for what it was like in Afghanistan right now for women, but you've set that stage and the larger stage. And, and, you know, I have been overwhelmingly critical of this debacle. I've called it the great American betrayal of Afghanistan, but it's also the betrayal of the Afghan people. It's a betrayal of Afghan women. It's also the betrayal of American veterans. And you, we had Admiral Mullen on last week saying, you know, I, I don't know why they, they didn't plan better. This is, you know, he, he, he agreed it was a debacle. But there's still this calcified group in the U.S. that I really want to want to get at with you, because um, what I've been surprised by is, is, frankly, Democrats who say we stand for women's rights. We are outraged about what's happening in Texas. But Afghanistan was going to happen that way anyway. Right. And, and a lot of people defending Biden, Biden's refusal to acknowledge mistakes. And what we have now in, in many ways is, is a war on women and others. But, you know, if, if this was happening somewhere else and we weren't involved, we considered a genocide. And most liberals, especially, would, would be wanting to intervene. Where is the disconnect here, Zainab? How can people who, who stand for human rights and who will be a part of the Women's March? And I'm really talking to, to many activists on the left in America. Why do they have a blind spot here? Why, why are, is it because there's a dehumanization of Afghans? Or, or can you get at why, and that many of them are your friends, my friends, I've got friends on all political sides. But there's a unique thing happening right now among Democrat leaders especially, where they're saying it's, it's not our problem, it would have happened anyway, it's not that bad. Can, can you pull that apart? Because I feel like there's not enough outrage, frankly. Right. And, 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 and I'm drawing that connection because I see the outrage in America around Texas, which is warranted. There's a war on women in many different ways. But there's essentially a genocide happening inside of Afghanistan and people don't want to hear it. 
So, so and already the media has shifted attention and Biden wants to put it in the rearview mirror and say, look at how many we got out. But he doesn't talk about the denominator and how many were left behind. So can you pull that apart from your you know, political and, and, and strategic understanding of this country and our politics? Why is this? Why are they letting this happen? I tell you, I'll be very honest here. Beside the loss of or the betrayal, as you said it, of veterans and allies and Afghan women and men, we have lost something even more fundamental, in my opinion. And that is the moral ground in which the U.S. stood on for the last decades. And I know for how long decades. Do you know how much U.S invested in selling these moral values and having walls, the world, you know, from leaders from all over the world, activists, youth, risking their lives and fighting and stepping up and holding these values and fighting for them for change in their own countries. That moral ground that the world was looking up to the U.S. is erased. And I say it to you bluntly, it got chipped on 20 years ago, you know, not on, not on the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, but it, on how it was managed. And then it got chipped on, chipped on, chipped on, like, you know, it, it's got diluted. And then you have also Trump that chipped on. But right now, I tell you, from I, I'm from Iraq originally, as you know. I my friends are from all over the world. I was in Turkey, you know, a month. Ago. People like Boo. the U.S. was a country we used to look up to. We used to aspire to become like in our moral values, in our democracy, in our freedom. And now we look at it with like, what this is. This is what the U.S. So the loss for men, for me is to the soul, mm. is to, uh, to the to the seed of what made the U.S. the great country. Mm. You know, and it's so, happening. It's happening the week of the U.N. speech, right? So Biden goes and speaks to the U.N. and tries to reset the table to say, "I'm not Trump. We're gonna we're gonna go first with with the State Department and diplomacy instead of the military." But in, in my view, Biden's been talking out both sides of his mouth since this started back in April, because, you know, to your point, negotiating with the Taliban is like this is like the handmaid's tale. This is like negotiating with Gilead. OK, mm-hmm. like these are people who are doing bad things. But there's become this kind of OK ism with the Taliban and this and this normalizing of the Taliban. while at the same time, something I focused on creating the otherism of the Afghans. And it, it seems to me like it's Biden. It's him. He's saying they didn't fight hard enough. You know, they, they didn't stand up, you know, that we tried and, and they didn't want it enough. Right. Which is really questioning, in my view, their heart and their integrity and their humanity, because what would we have done if the Taliban rolled through New York or Texas? Like many of us would have put down our guns and said, I'll live to fight another day. And there's also something else happening that I think you know more about than almost anyone, that the, the appearance of peace. Right. This honeymoon period where people say, oh, Afghans are tired of war. Well, there's less war because a ton of people are, are dead, a ton of people have left, and a ton of people are hiding. So just like you know, the Iraqi surge where everything got split among ethnic lines, this is almost a, a, a paper mache piece. Or it's, it's a victory for the Taliban where they can maintain it. So can you get to the core of, 
of do you think Biden understands Afghanistan? You know, I'll, I'll I want to say a few points here. Yeah. Because I am very upset at Biden right now. And honestly, you know, I mean, if there's an election today, he definitely lost my respect and my votes. Definitely. You know, and it's very sad because I'm a hardcore Democrat. And but I am sick and tired of leaders who give good speeches and him particular claimed women's rights and gave all these good speeches in Women's Month and all of that, but speak from here and act from here. And at the roots of his, in my opinion, uh, is honestly two things. One is deep prejudice on, this is what I feel as a Muslim. Right. I, I'm American. I'm a Muslim. But this is what I really, truly feel, Paul. And I'm just telling it to you bluntly. I feel there is a deep, deep disrespect of human lives when it comes to Muslims. Mm-hmm. And there is a deep prejudice that Muslims mean a bunch of thugs and terrorists and oppressors of women. And that they are uh, determined like they are destined to be this secondary humans or third humans, and that we are not, you know, it's it's sort of like there is deep-seated prejudice. Because if you respect lives, you know, I mean, for God's sake, you know, at the minimum, a million people got killed in both Afghanistan and Iraq. At the minimum, you know, at the minimum, 330,000 civilians of them. This is like, I think this is where you can record on paper, but like, I am 100% sure it's much more, right? And it's like that deep disrespect to the human emotion. Now let's go back to to, to humanity of other people. And this almost cannot believe they are Muslims who actually espouse different values and different uh, perspectives on life. And they want to live in a modern society and they want to live. And then they, it's almost a disbelief that Islam actually can be, you know, I grew up in that religion, you know, which is there was equality, there was celebration, there was tolerance. Yes, it's a dark moment in religious history in Islam, but that does not mean, it's almost like giving the terrorists in, a, in, in America, giving those who have done uh, who have rioted in on January 2nd, uh, 6th, sorry, and saying, this is America. Right. This is what it feels like. It's giving that group of people, you know, the, the ones with the monster looking and the, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. beast look, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the one, and they're saying from the, for the world to say, this is America, ha ha. And then every American, your, your identity as Paul and everybody identity is gets erased because all what they see is that beast that, you know, that uh, terrorize uh, all of us and particularly those in, in the capital, right? This is how it feels. It's like our Taliban are our beasts. The fundamentals and the terrorists are our beasts. And these beasts are not the entire countries or the entire religion or the entire thing. So that's one. The other one, and it's because I got the chance to testify at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I don't know, during the Obama administration, to be honest, the first uh, the first um, term. And then I got to talk with President Biden himself at that time. And it was, how do we engage in Afghanistan? That was the question. How do we pull out? And that was the question more than eight years ago, right? How do we pull out? Mm -hmm. And I tell you, and I mean, and I'm 
curious about your thoughts as, as a former um, uh, military um, person, a, a veteran, is that there was always that. I mean, I remember the testimony was with three people, right? Was a military expert, was me as a humanitarian, and was with the diplomat. And it started with, and this is a public testimony, and now, now some books are coming out of it, started with the military experts saying, this is about, we win by killing as many uh, Taliban as possible. You win. And he said, I want to say it bluntly to you. You kill, and that's how we win. I was horrified as a humanitarian, and as an Iraqi who grew up in Iraq, who's in Iran, and, and like, I mean, with the people, I am living and, and breathing with the people in Afghanistan and other. And I'm like, the more you kill, the more Taliban you create because they have sons and it doesn't matter the values. It doesn't matter. The more you kill, the more vengeance you create, the way you create peace, and then you can exit safely and, and peacefully is please help them address what they want and what they want. They worth asking. And this is Afghanistan, but same in Iraq. They're like, we want roads. Can you paint the roads? Can you like, we, you know, can, can we invest in more jobs? You know, schools, we want bills. Yeah, like they wanted that to be the headline. I mean, and I worked in Afghanistan right after September 11. I mean, and right after the, uh, the U.S. Uh, arrival there. And I honestly, Paul, I would go to, to the hill and beg and beg, you know, USAID and beg the U.S. government. Like, even if you put a poster saying a road is coming up, mm. you know, just just please just say something to show that there is hope. Well, a lot of the U.S. Biden himself was saying, but we invested a lot in schools and we got the goals up and all. Yes, we did. But I assure you, the money we spent on schooling and making people's life better, it's minuscule compared to how much money we spent on the military and on risking our sons and daughters' lives. And it's not. And so there's a prejudice, not only the Muslim, there's a prejudice on this notion, which I am fathomed by, you know, like, you know, on because it's now framed. And I remember Biden saying himself, he's like, you are telling us uh, uh, that we need to engage in nation building. And I remember, you know, many senators at the time, President, Senator Kerry, Senator, uh, they were like, Biden was not, I was vice president. It was a different meeting. It was like, we are not in the business of nation building. Right. We are in the business of war. And he said that month ago. And here's what doesn't connect to me. Sir, the more you engage in war, the more people get angry because it's about destroying their lives. There was a yesterday uh, a talk about the apologies the U.S. said about the drones that killed civilians, right? And yeah, I want to go down. I want to drill down on that one with you, please. Well, please. and there was an interview, you know, by, by the New York Times with one young woman who lost her father and her fiance at the same same time, and I was listening to to her cry, and I have goosebumps just think about because she was livid in anger. Live it because she's like, I lost my father and my fiance at the same time. And they were civilians working with NGOs, international NGOs, right? And she's livid. And I look at, I, I, I hear her and it's like, her anger, right? This has, to, you know, when you are, when your life is destroyed, 
you have to, your anger is inevitable. And for the humans who go and say, I am not going to use this anger for evil. I am just going to like hold my breath and use it for good. It's a, it's a discipline that not many people have the tools and the resources to have it. I have it honestly, because I fucking meditate every day, excuse my <laughs> effort, you know, because yeah. I meditate because I walk on a trail every day and because nature helps me, but I don't know if I can hold that. You know, if my home is destroyed and I am not able to live and my father and my fiance got got killed, right? Because of a mistake. So the engagement with the world, lessons learned for me, is that we continue, the U.S. government continued to ridicule the idea of nation building while the civilians of Afghanistan and of Iraq you know, they were not, I mean, and I know nation building because they don't want to be colonized and all of these things. You know what? Actually, I mean, as a colonized, I come from a colonized country, right? When there's so much criticism of the British and all of these things, and I'm against all colonization. And at least the British, when they colonized the region, they left railroads and they got employment. And then there, there are still things that we're still work, still actually being impacted in. So as opposed to U.S. engagement with the world was through purely the lens of war and and, and demonizing the idea that people actually could want just a decent life. So we've got to fundamentally look at that engagement and at that lens, because if we continue in that, we are furtherly screwed, let's say it in a a polite way. I don't know if that was polite or not. No, that 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 whole part was a bullseye, right? And and that's what people need to hear right now and need to understand. I think even the, the component about nation building, you know, nation building has become a dirty word, right? And, and, and you could argue that some of nation building is humanitarian work, right? Like the basic infrastructure creation, if it comes in a different package, is humanitarian work. So nation building, the business that we were in for so long, and really since the beginning of our existence as a country, we are undermining while we do it. So we may not love nation building, but we committed to it, right? Like we built the house halfway and other people helped us build that house. And when we drop it, it it makes sense that they are going to have um, a fear all along that we would leave. You know, the old saying that, you know, the Americans have the watches, we have the time. There was always this idea that we would give up, that we wouldn't have the stomach for it. We wouldn't have the time for it. and, And things would just, the Taliban would wait. And the, the Afghans knew that, even our partners knew that, but they never thought we were going to yank the cord like this, right? So abruptly, so disgustingly, so so totally. And I, the piece I wanted to ask you to talk about, Zainab, because it's kind of, it's upside down world now where George Bush is making sense, right? Like George Bush is connecting the dots, but George Bush maybe has some experience that's helping him get to this bridge between January 6th and, and, and the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or ISIS-K or whatever the iterations are. But there's there's still this to me, Biden sounded a lot like Bush in the last couple of months. Right. In in his dismissiveness, in his in his black and white structure, in his lies. Right. In his spin. But I want you to talk, if you can, please, about the impact of the drone strikes and not just this one, because in my view, it was the ultimate insult on the way out. We we, we say we're going to get you back and we blow up, you know, we fire a hellfire missile and kill the wrong people and kill seven kids. It's like the ultimate insult after this terrible betrayal. But maybe the bigger insult is that Americans forgot about it already. The Afghans never will. The family you talked about never will. But they've also never forgotten about 20 years of drone strikes. 
where where it draw strikes terrorize people around the world. And the other part that is is really, I think, egregious is Biden saying before the U.N., we are no longer at war. So he says we're no longer at war. Tim Kaine and others are saying that no, we're no longer at war, but we're still firing hellfire missiles. We've still got drones. We've still got troops in Syria. We've still got people getting combat pay. So they're, in my view, lying. Can, can you talk about the reality of American drone strikes in totality over the last 20 years? What that, what that has done to all of this? It's, it's because I want, the way I want to address your question is by sharing to, the, to your viewers how it feels for the drone to be landing on your land, on your house. It's a, you know, like, because for, from, a, from a US perspective, it's a clean operation, right? It's someone on a computer, uh, you know, it's a clean operation, we're not risking, you know, any American lives. And it's true, but that's, you know, unless the US shift its way of looking at the world and engaging with the world, we are in big trouble. Because yes, we are sparing American lives, right? American soldiers' lives, indeed, right? But we are not sparing America's safety. You know, we are not sparing. And then from the person who is getting the bombs, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many stories I have. I mean, I come from that, you know, from country that, from countries that they experience it. Um, I don't know how to explain it because it's a massacre. It's really a massacre, right? And and I've heard many U.S soldiers, you know, who engage in, and, and I, I don't want to quote anybody, but they were saying, because it's like, there's a moral injury, moral injury. There is times in which you fight and it's clear fighting and it's the bad guy, right? But there are times in which, you know, whether it is the cluster bomb or whether it is the drone, you know, is going to hit all these civilians. And we call them uh, what is civilian casualties or whatever, minor, whatever it is. That is, I mean, I want to cry right now because it just, it shows the fundamental disrespect to human lives when it is non-Americans. And we cannot, because that makes people, you know, like when America, people hurt when America entered Afghanistan and when America entered Iraq, it was true. It was true what Bush said. What President Bush said that they will welcome because, but it wasn't they welcoming the army. They were welcoming the idea that America, the country they look up to and love, may help them the way they helped the Japanese and the Germans rebuild their lives. That's what they were welcoming. Not mm-hmm. that the fact that they were soldiers going to come and knock on their doors in the middle of the night and, you know, raid their homes and not that. I mean, there was a brilliant article in the New Yorker about the other Afghan women. And it was the, the showing that discrepancy between, okay, the educated Afghan women in, in, in Kabul and were, you know, becoming parliamentarian and journalists and judges and aspiring and all of that, right? And then there were the very poor Afghan women who are in small provinces and small villages where their fighting was still between the U.S. and the Taliban. And they talk about each and in the art, it's a great article. Everyone should read it. I was crying at the end of the article. Every woman has about 16 members of her family, immediate family debt. 
her husband, her father, her brothers, her sons, and other, and they're killed. Not be, they were not Taliban. They were all civilian casualties. All you know, like oh, a car passes by a house, so let's throw a, a, a what do you call it? A drone on it, you know. Uh, and the car because it's Toyota. Oh, then all Taliban used Toyota. I mean that there were decision making being made by some people in Washington D.C. out of context to the reality on the ground, out of res- uh, completely lack of respect to the reality on the ground and completely lack of um, humility that knowledge does not come only from some you know, s- sterile offices with computers and the smartness of how do you do that. Yeah. To build peace, we've got to engage the human beings as human beings and, and show respect to them. And we yeah. lack that, we, we yeah. truly lack that. There's a part of the drone strikes that I think is important to pull apart because in some ways it's the ultimate disrespect of humanity because you don't even kill them in person. Right. Like like it, it, it is remote. It is disconnected. It is it is uh, it, it is over the horizon. Right. Is now the term over the horizon also means removing the emotional connection, removing the personal responsibility, dialing it in right now. You know, yeah, you keep Americans safe. But you also remove the American ability to have discretion in a difficult environment and you remove the accountability. Right. Like so they, they, it, and I think it's such an important point for people to understand, even the apology, the non-apology apology. You know, no restitution. The president took days to acknowledge it. Seven kids are dead. They blew up a guy who was putting water bottles in the back of his truck. And I've been in those situations where they get it wrong. They shoot the wrong house. They shoot, And then it, it's disposable. So I think there's that is the piece that really outrages me about Biden in particular and about this administration and Saki and the others who want to whitewash it. So it, for many people, it's already in the rear view mirror. Let me ask you, there's a demonstration coming up this weekend, September 25th. You're promoting and leading. I see you're, you're getting people to stand with Afghan women. I saw a T-shirt with Hugh Jackman's wearing it. Right. But you're, you're doing what you do. You're mobilizing, you're organizing, you're humanizing this. And, and you know, there's going to we're going to be allies again in another fight. Right. Working on this, even if our government won't. So can you tell us what is happening uh, on 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 September 25th and what needs to happen now? You've been through this before, unfortunately. Right. What what do we need people to do now if Biden won't do shit, frankly? Yeah, I don't trust Biden doing shit right now, to be honest. And I wish he does some shit uh, because, again, like that, you know, the drone, uh, the drone attack on these civilians, they were like, at least help us get out of the Afghanistan and the U.S. They're still allies in Afghanistan, Paul. They're still journalists and they're still interpreters. I'm working with them on daily basis in, in Afghanistan, stuck fluent English. Brilliant worked with the U.S. Army and they feel so I mean, when you humanize, when you talk to these individuals, it's just heartbreaking because they believed they believed in America, you know, and when you believe and love someone and they betray you. That's harder. It's just it goes like the the it, the sword goes really deep in the heart because it's you can't be betrayed by someone you don't love. Mm. You can only get betrayed by someone you love. And these people loved and trusted and put their lives in the front lines with America to build together. You know, they really, it's just, 
So the job is not done. I mean, I know a lot of the news have moved on, but I am telling you, there are thousands of allies still in the, I mean, I can't believe it. Biden's like, oh, 30,000 people out and all of that. We are still struggling to get people out. Until today, we are still struggling to get people out, men, women, children, everything. So a couple of things, what we have done. You know, so we created an alliance and a coalition of women. Um, basically, because there was no prioritization with women. And I have to tell you, Paul, honestly, there was no prioritization, not in terms of plan to evacuate them. Even when we pulled a coalition of women together, raise about $10 million so we can have our own funds to either charter planes or pay for seats or pay for any modes of, like to get them out. You know, we were elbowed, elbowed by some of the men in the in the in the in the administration you know because it's like no 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 we don't want this we had to fight for every woman that we got out just so you know just to be because that sexism is sort of so embedded and again i feel mm. like what what came clear to me in here that i no longer want anybody to give good speeches about women i want people to act about women and we really need to understand why this is not only women, this is a safety of everyone. They are just the bellwether. They are just the indicator. They are just the lowest hanging fruits. And so that was one. So there we got some women out. We, you know, these people who are getting out, just so you know, most of them, you know, don't still have SIV visas, you know? So they are worked with the U.S. for 10 years, 20 years, three years, five years, whatever. They, there's just no one. Like there's no even a road to show SIV visa. So we are scrambling to get them out, right? And we're scrambling and shame, really shame, scrambling to get them to a third country to for safety because Pakistan is not safe and it's not accepting them for the variety of device, um, a variety of uh, political reasons, but we're begging, we're calling countries at a time. This is civilians calling countries, please, Spain, can you give them some visas, please, Portugal. I mean, we're like not spared a prime minister or a foreign prime minister or a whatever it is, please, we beg you. Can, and this is civilians doing that, right? And scrambling for other countries to solve something that we have created and at least get a lot, get a, a, a clear process. So our allies, okay, we'll get them. But can you please expedite their SIV? So then we don't have a, a process to get them visas in here. This could take a year. These are, you know, educated people. They are the creme de la creme of society. Right now they're with, they're in 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 this un, unknown, you know, reality. Where how do they gonna live? Where they're gonna earn their living? There's some of them going to uh, cold. Uh, areas they, they all left with carry on. They don't have their computers. They don't have anything, right? So that's one reality we're dealing with. There is zero understanding of like, can they expedite our their entry in the US? Can we please get them? No understanding. And then, so here's a question. So there's one is we need to continue these evacuation efforts. That's mm -hmm. one. Second, they are, you know, whatever we get out managed, you know, uh, thousands of people. There are hundreds of thousands and millions of people who are still in Afghanistan, right? And there's still hundreds of thousands of women are still in Afghanistan. And so for me, it's priority one is evacuate the ones we can. And that's still going. Priority two, or the same priority, but you know, make sure that every government, every engagement with the Taliban 
has to, like every uh, financial transaction with the Taliban, whether it's by the UN or the US or the World Bank or any individual bank or whatever, must prioritize and allocate funds directly to women and girls. You know, not through government, but mm-hmm. through directly women and girls. Because the minute we acknowledge them, they, you know, they wanted to send their envoy to the UN. Imagine we have a Taliban envoy to the UN. We cannot acknowledge them. Because the minute we acknowledge them, we legitimize them. And when they legitimize them, we are screwing every single Afghan resistance inside of Afghanistan. It makes it much harder. So we cannot acknowledge them and recognize them and legitimize them. But there needs to be funds going that, inside. That's, the, that's, a really, that, that's a really, really important point where I think people don't understand they have agency now. They, they, they have power, right? Like we should be undermining the Taliban, right? There is a resistance. There is an expat resistance. There's a resistance inside Afghanistan. We should be supporting the resistance, undermining the Taliban. If we're not going to do it ourselves, we've fought by proxy for hundreds of years in this country. This is is where we need to shift the administration, in my view, and and Congress, not to just accept. I'm going to keep using the example, not just accept Gilead, right? And and somewhere June is inside, June from from Handmaid's Tale, and and other handmaids are organizing and fighting back, and we need to support them. And the more we acknowledge the Taliban and acknowledge Gilead, the the more doomed they are. So can you talk specifically about the the, the demonstration September 25th? What's what's happening? September 25th is happening in New York, it's happening in LA, it's happening in 55 other cities and countries around the world, from Croatia to Turkey to a whole bunch of countries. Go to 1 billion rising uh, to register and uh, and attend. I will be here in New York. It's going to be in front of the UN uh, Plaza and um, please come. You know, we are and here. So that's one thing. Right. Come, please, because the world needs to hear. They need to hear us. Here's the thing, Paul. They are going to be in June in uh, inside of Afghanistan. Right. They're resisting in their own ways. It is vitally important that they hear us saying, I hear you. Right. Because they are resisting inside. And if you don't hear the world saying it's like someone saying, ah, hello, hello. hello. It's important for someone outside to say, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. That is important. So the reason we need to join in the demonstration is because it is important. And the reason beyond the demonstration on September 25th, we need to continue the drum beat going, whether it's demonstrating constantly, whether in every engagement, if you are a filmmaker, write about Afghanistan. If you are a congressman, make sure Afghanistan, like whatever you do, Put Afghanistan and Afghan women particularly in the priority because we cannot forget. The first thing Biden wants is to like, you know, put a bow on the story and finish it and all of that. It is upon all of us, again, for a variety of reasons. One, out of our moral obligation, you know, moral for us, our morality, not our values, not this. Ours. We need to protect these values that I so love about America. So it's upon right now civilians and citizens to protect these values. Mm. One. B, the takeover of Taliban is going to lead to national insecurity, regional insecurity throughout the region is an existential threat to all the uh, allies in the region, you know, and to Islam itself. And 
Guess what? When ISIS came and took over Iraq, a third, one third of Iraq, we also thought this is something they have to deal with. What it terrorized the whole entire world. It terrorized every citizen in America for three years, if you remember, right? That's what the Taliban are. They're gonna. We, it's not an isolated incident in Afghanistan. It's an. It's gonna be impacting all of our psyche and our security. And so we've got to keep the drum beat going in every sector you are in. If you have a store, put I stand for Afghan. If you are like anything, because we cannot forget and we will not forget until they are safe and until there is an exit out of this horrible story. I want to say one thing because I was horrified, horrified by hearing it. The U.S. forced the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban from prison. Five, it's the U.S. who forced them. It's not the Afghan government. And these 5,000 Taliban who we spend so much time and efforts and, and, and humans to find them and to track them and to imprison them are now leading, leading mm-hmm. shame, shame, mm-hmm. you know, on, and, they, on and, they, and, and they're being, and they may be invited to the UN. <laughs> and, and, and that's so, so allowed that to happen. Um, you, I, I am glad that you pulled the Jedi uniform out of the closet and you came down from the, the, the outdoors. You and I have shared this, this, this change um, and we've both been pulled back into it by events. But um, I am grateful for your leadership and your sacrifice. You are a warrior for peace and, and you're one of my true heroes. And, and I think that this is what people need to understand. It, the Taliban is, is, not a, is not a country. It's, it's a movement. And, and we have an obligation to fight that movement in the same way we fought fascism in World War II. If you let it go, it spreads. You can't just let Hitler hang out in, in Germany. We can't let the Taliban hang out in Afghanistan. This is, this, is, this is one of the most important fights of our time, and we've got to support the Jedis who, who are outside like you and the Jedis who are inside still fighting. Everybody should support the demonstrations on September 25th. Zainab also has a new podcast coming. And, and you should support and check that out. Follow her on social media. She is a true champion. Um, and, and I adore you. And I'm so grateful you spent so much time with us. I hope you'll come back and, and call me anytime you need a bodyguard. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Paul. I have to say, because the first time I met you and here you are a veteran, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, a fighter and all that. And you talked about love. And I was so touched, so, so deeply touched at that first moment I met you. And I'm still touched by your friendship and by your love and by your respect and by your big heart for calling the truth, actually. And it's an honor truly to be in this conversation and to be a friend and call you a brother. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll keep cranking it up. The fight in, you know, the, the fight, fight for the American military may be over, but the bigger fight has just begun and, and it's going to be long and hard. But. I got your back. You got mine. Uh, and we'll go for some walks near Edward R. Murrow's house. <laughs> and, and if you never heard uh, episode nine, uh, go back because Zainab has the best, maybe the best car story we ever had. <laughs> I'll ask her to stick around for a couple quick fire questions for our Patreon members. But thank you for all you do. You, you are a true helper and stay vigilant, my friend. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. All right, that's the stakes, people. Zainab laid it all out. If you didn't before, now you understand why she's a true modern-day Jedi. When I say look for the helpers, Zainab Salbi is what I'm talking about. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. 
you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. My deepest thanks to Zainab for joining me. Check out all her books and check out her website, ZainabSalbi.com. Look for her new podcast coming soon. It's called Redefined. Join her in person in New York City on September 25th. Or join her in L.A. or in cities nationwide or virtually. You can go to OneBillionRising.org for more information. And if you're listening to this after that, you can still get involved and use the hashtag StandWithWomenOfAfghanistan. My thanks to Zainab for showing us all what a true fighter looks like. And of course, my massive thanks to my own family, my wife, and my two boys. Last weekend was my son's sixth birthday party. And we had it at our house. Bouncy house and all, a full Lego theme. And I never want to do that again. (laughs) I love my kids and I love my wife. But few things in life are more exhausting than hosting a six-year-old's birthday party at your house especially when your two-year-old didn't sleep the entire night before. But in the end, it was a riot and everybody had a great time, and I'm thankful to all of them. I'm lucky to have their support, and it's going to be a great fall. And my thanks and a shout-out to our fearless Patreon members. As always, they support this fight. They help us bring you content like this conversation with Zainab. And if you're a Patreon member, you will get extra content with Zainab. Over on Patreon, she'll tell you her seven steps to a happy day. It's pretty awesome. I wrote them down. I'm going to teach them to my kids. I'm going to try them. But it's bonus content that's now over on Patreon for our Patreon members only. And of course, I asked Zainab pancakes versus waffles and she gives us one of the best answers ever you will not be disappointed and if you join our patreon community you will not be disappointed join the movement join our growing insurgent army of independence you get exclusive access to content and events by becoming a member of that independent americans patreon community you can start at just five bucks there are three levels but it starts at just five bucks you can get merch discounts exclusive content and you will support this work and we need it now more than ever This episode should underscore the importance of independent media, and we can't do without you. And we can't do without the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. They continue to make this show possible and make all our shows at Righteous Media possible. Be sure to check out Everybody and Their Mother Has a Podcast and check out The Firefighters with Rob Sarah, all from Righteous Media. New episodes of Everybody and Their Mother Has a Podcast hit every Wednesday. My show comes on Thursday. And Rob Sarah's Firefighters podcast hits every Friday. They're all 100% free. Spread the word and join the growing Righteous family. You can get them anywhere you get your pods or you can go to Righteous.us and look for more shows coming soon. But if you love this show, please support us and go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. Be sure to subscribe for free on whatever platform you're listening to now and share. Visit us on social media especially on Wednesdays when we continue to play Guess the Guest. Every Wednesday, I will post a picture without the guest's face, and you have to guess who is our next guest. And last weekend, we had a few winners. One of them was Delfino Sanchez. Our friend Delfino Sanchez wins again. The head of Aldine Tree Services, Houston Stump Grinding down in Houston, Texas. You've heard about them before. They're a family-owned business serving the community since 2001. And Delfino Sanchez correctly guessed Admiral Michael Glenn Mullen. Congratulations, Delfino. Thank you. And I hope everybody enjoyed that episode with Admiral Mullen. It's one of our biggest yet. The numbers are off the charts. If you haven't heard it, check it out. If you did, please share it. 
Admiral Mullen only did two interviews in the last few weeks. He did our friend Martha Raddatz on ABC, and he did Independent Americans. So it was a big one. Check it out. And check out independentamericans.us. You can see video of my conversation with Admiral Mullen and this new conversation with Zainab. And you can get the sharp Independent Americans hat that I'm rocking in this conversation with Zainab. They're very cool. And you can get your own on the website now. It's a structured twill cap in six colors. We got six colors and it's got a flex fit rim, which is very comfortable and very cool. You can also find some camping mugs, great t-shirts. That's all at independentamericans.us. And you can, of course, find Independent Americans on the Righteous Media YouTube channel. You can see all the video from our show, from Everybody and Their Mother Has a Podcast, and Rob Sarah's new Firefighters podcast, including the cooking segments with his daughter, Frankie. Go check us out on YouTube. America is still more divided than ever, but we at Independent Americans are trying to change that. We're fighting to add light to contrast all the heat of our political dialogue. And we're going to continue to bring the Righteous Media Five Eyes, independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact, even when it's hard. Of course, if you're among the 40% of Americans who are independent or politically unaffiliated, this is your show. But if you're a Republican or a Democrat and you're not a diehard partisan, this is your show. And if you're inside Afghanistan, we hear you, we see you, and this is your show. If you're a concerned American who just cares about the future of your country, this is your show. All are welcome. We invite you to join us and be a part of the solution. Just like Zainab Salbi. She represents that fighting spirit. And she represents overcoming pain and loss. And there's been no shortage of pain and loss in this summer of 2021. But as we move into a new season, as we move into fall, there's also hope, even after tragedy. Zainab is proof of that. But we got more proof in the last few weeks. On August 26th in Kabul, Marine Lance Corporal Riley McCullum was one of 13 service members killed. He was an exceptional young man, and his loss was tragic. And this month, his daughter was born. Levi Riley Rose McCullum, daughter of Lance Corporal Riley McCullum and his wife Gina, came roaring into this world and graced us with her presence. That was according to a Facebook post by Jill Miller Creighton, Gina's mother. She was born in the early morning of September 13th, and our friends over at Task and Purpose had the story. McCullum was from Jackson, Wyoming, and he planned to join the military his whole life. He was a baby himself on the day of September 11th, when the attacks happened that started the war in Afghanistan and he signed up for the Marine Corps the day he turned 18. He insisted on the infantry, though his recruiter tried to get him to go to another route. But McCullum had his mind made up. He left for boot camp in San Diego last year after finishing high school. That's where he met his wife, Gina. And on Valentine's Day this year, the two were married. By the time McCullum was leaving for his first overseas deployment in April, the newlywed couple was expecting their first child. Just two weeks before the attack, McCullum and the others in his unit, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marine Regiment, were sent to Afghanistan to assist in the evacuation of Afghans and Americans. He was manning the security checkpoint at Abbey Gate when the suicide bomber hit. In a Facebook post on August 27th, his wife Gina had said she lost her best friend and said nothing will ever make the hurt less. He would have been the best dad, she said. I wish he could see how much of an impact he made on this world. 
When a Reddit post announced Levi's birth, it was flooded with messages of support for the little girl and her family. One person said, I hope she always knows how brave her father was. Another person said, I bet he'd be filled with only happiness and love right now. Hoorah. Another one added, that little girl has an entire brotherhood behind her. And it's not just messages of support that the family's been getting in the midst of their loss. In the wake of McCullum's death, two GoFundMe fundraiser pages were launched to raise money for Gina and the baby. Between the two, one launched by Gina's mother for her daughter and the other one started by the Breach Supply Company for the education of baby Levi, over $900,000 has been raised. I'll share both of them on my social media and post them at independentamericans.us. The person who originally posted the birth announcement on Reddit said that Levi will always be comforted knowing that her father was and is a hero, a courageous and brave man. She will know him through the stories, the memories shared, and the legacy he held that is now our duty to carry. She will also know him through the communal love, for as she enters the world collectively, we've raised over $850,000 for her and her family. That is a reflection, not of any of us, but a reflection of her father and the effect he had on all of us. Lance Corporal Riley McCollum is gone, but never forgotten. We mourn his loss, but we celebrate his life, and his spirit will live on in little Levi Riley Rose. She's the hope. And hope is the oxygen of democracy. It's the oxygen we need when times are toughest, and especially as the weather gets colder and the winter comes creeping. It's how we'll keep this movement of independent Americans growing week by week and how we'll stay vigilant because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And it's up to all of us to pay it in whatever way we can, whether it's showing up for the rally for Afghan women with Zainab, supporting the digital Dunkirk and Matt Zeller, or donating to the GoFundMe page for Little Levi. We can all be helpers. We can all share that hope and the vigilance. And know you're not alone in that vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this together. From FBI Director Chris Ray to Zainab Salbi, to Delfino Sanchez, to baby Levi Riley Rose, to you. All across this country, we're all in this together. And we can make an impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening, and stay vigilant, America. America.